chapter 64. In the last chapter we had, harking back to the exodus out of Egypt, chapter 63, verses 11 through 14, looking forward to a new exodus out of Babylon or out of all the world. And in this chapter 64, we have a new descent of God on the mount, like he came down on Mount Sinai anciently in a great display of power. They're looking back at that and also looking forward to the new version of that in the end of the world when the Lord will come down upon Mount Zion and appear to his people. And in those days, Moses sought diligently to prepare the people to meet with God or to meet God on the mount. But when God came down on the mount, the people ran away and said to Moses, you speak with God, you tell us what he wants us to do, and we'll do what you say. But in fact, 70 elders and Moses and Aaron did go up to the mount and see God and meet with God. So at least there was a representation of the people that did. In effect, in those days, there was a division of three categories of people. The ones who saw God up on the mount with Moses, the ones who formed the congregation of Israel, who congregated in what's called solemn assemblies and received the word of God through Moses. And there were those who were the mixed multitude and others who were part of Israel, but they were not of the other two groups. So we have a threefold division there. In this scenario here, we have something similar. We have those who see God in the book of Isaiah, those who meet God when he comes. And we just saw at the end of chapter 62 that he comes to his people Zion, and it's a universal event. And then there are those who survive the calamities of the last days, part of that group that needs to repent and does, and we've already seen that group. There are those who recognize their faults or are beginning to recognize them. There's still some self-deception among them, but eventually they realize that they have been transgressors and that they need to repent, and they do, and uh, they also become the congregation of Israel. And then there are those who are part of the slaughter and are plundered and trodden down by the Assyrians that don't survive. So in 64, it starts off, O that thou wouldst rend the heavens and descend, the mountains melting at thy presence, as when fire is lit for boiling water which bubbles over from the heat, to make thyself known to thine adversaries, the nations trembling at thy presence. As when thou didst perform awesome things Unexpected by us, thy descent of old when the mountains quake before thee. And that descent of old was, of course, on Mount Sinai. And some did burn up in his presence at that time. Those who transgressed were burnt. And now these people are appealing to the Lord to come down again and rescue them from their enemies and adversaries. In effect, let our enemies be burned up in your presence, as they were anciently. The problem with that is that unless they themselves are purified and sanctified and are prepared to meet God face to face, they themselves will get burned up in his presence, just as they did anciently. And so God can't come too soon. He can't come until these people have gone through the refiner's fire, his people have gone through the refiner's fire, and are ready, in fact, to meet their God. The rending of the heavens implies divine intervention. And God does descend, as on the spiritual ladder, he's at the very top. He stands at the gate of heaven. And it is a condescension, besides being a descent. And as we saw in chapter 53, 
God did come down already and he was rejected of his people by and large. So why should he come down now to rescue them? There has to be a change in their attitude and their preparedness and their allegiance to him. And there is. By the time that he comes, there is, in fact, a group prepared to meet him. Isaiah uses imagery of all kinds in his discussions. Boiling water is just another one. There are three lines here that parallel each other. The mountains melting at thy presence, the nations trembling at thy presence, and the mountains quaking at thy presence or before thee. It's the same word in Hebrew, lefanecha, mipanecha, means before thee or at thy presence. The presence of the Lord could be his actual presence. He's right there. This is his literal, physical coming. But it can also mean that time period that precedes his coming. So at thy presence can mean at the time of his coming, the time immediately preceding his coming. And the verbs melting and trembling and quaking are all synonyms in Hebrew. And at thy presence is the same in the three instances. So these are really three parallel lines that parallel mountains with nations and mountains in an ABA chiasm, which means that Isaiah is establishing the idea that mountains can serve as a metaphor of nations. There are three synonymous parallel lines. The only odd man out is nations, and it shouldn't be. And if it isn't, then it also means mountains. Mountains can mean nations. We can say the mountains melting at his presence could mean the nations melting in his presence. The nations trembling at thy presence, the second one, and then the mountains quaking before thee means the nations quaking before him or at his presence in an allegorical sense. And when we look back at all that we've read in the book of Isaiah and see the whole scenario that Isaiah has described, we see, in fact, that there are mountains quaking, literally, physically. And also the king of Assyria is the one who causes the mountains to quake and the nations to quake both. The quaking is a word link to the king of Assyria. For example, chapter 5, verse 25. Therefore the anger of the Lord is kindled against his people. He draws back his hand against them and strikes them. The mountains quake and their corpses lie like litter about the streets. For all this his anger is not abated. His hand is upraised still. He raises an ensign to distant nations. And goes on to talk about the king of Assyria, who personifies God's hand in anger. Then in chapter 14, there the king of Assyria, under his religious title, the king of Babylon, says, Is this the man who made the earth shake and kingdoms quake, who turned the world into a wilderness, demolishing its cities? In effect, these people are calling upon the Lord for help against the king of Assyria. And when God comes, he comes to destroy the wicked and to deliver the righteous. That's the nature of his coming, as a twofold aspect. And so it is here. But his actual literal physical coming doesn't necessarily destroy the wicked. The wicked are destroyed before his actual coming. They're destroyed at his presence, at his imminent presence, but not at his literal physical presence. When the Lord comes, he comes to an earth that has been cleansed of the wicked through the various calamities that happen. King of Assyria destroys the wicked, the sinners and the wicked people and criminals and tyrants and proud ones of the earth. And then the armies of the Lord's servant destroy the Assyrians. And so finally when the Lord comes, he comes to a purified earth. Verse 4, Never has it been heard or perceived by the ear, nor has any eye seen a God besides thee, who acts thus on behalf of those who wait for him. That is, God comes to the rescue. 
And that's his nature. He's a savior of his people. That's why in chapter 62, he comes under his name, Salvation. See, your salvation comes, his reward with him, his work preceding him. He personifies salvation. And that's how he acts on behalf of those who wait for him. And the waiting for him is another word link. It identifies those who have waited it out, whose allegiance to the Lord has been tested to the utmost. And that's part of their cleansing and refining process, is that they continue to have faith in the Lord all through these afflictions, all through these bad times, through the oppressions, the bondage, the tribulations of that period of time. And they still go on trusting in the Lord, hoping in Him and waiting for Him. The adversity that happens is really good, because it does cleanse them and sanctify them, and lifts them up a level on the spiritual ladder. They pass the test. It is a test for them. And that is what lifts them higher. Good and evil work together for good, or can for those who deal with it properly. Verse 5, But thou woundest those of us who joyfully perform righteousness. Now this is the same kind of group of people talking as in chapter 63, where they said, Why, O Lord, hast thou made us stray from thy ways, hardening our hearts so that we do not fear thee? There's a little self-deception going on. And this is not the elect group. This is not the group of the holy ones and the valiant ones. They wouldn't talk like that. They're the ones who are waiting it out, and the Lord comes to the rescue and intervenes on their behalf. But this is another group. This is a lesser group of individuals. They're not the ones who are destroyed, who are out-and-out wicked, or who have hardened their hearts beyond the point of return. But this is an intermediate group, and they're struggling with themselves, with their acts, But they're coming around. As you'll see, bit by bit through these last chapters, they come around and see things as they are. Thou woundest those of us who joyfully perform righteousness, who remember thee by following thy ways, that in them we might ever be saved. They are performing righteousness. Even in difficult times, when you come under attack, when you're persecuted and mocked for your allegiance to God, they do it joyfully. They've come a long way from where they were before. And yet they say, Thou woundest those of us who joyfully perform righteousness. They're not saying, like they did in the last chapter, Thou hast made us stray from thy ways, hardening our hearts. You hardened our hearts. You made us stray. No. They're a stage beyond that kind of deception. People may have been born into a situation and raised up in such a way that they didn't fear God. But they can't blame God for that. If they themselves had made the right choices they would not be there. At any rate, this group is beyond that. They're moving ahead in their repentance process. They're recognizing, though, that they're suffering at the hands of God. Why? If God is just and merciful, why are they still now going through difficulties? Why doesn't he just come and rescue them? Well, because God wants them to go through more repentance and more purifying. And the wounding of them, or their being afflicted with various misfortunes, is nothing other than the curses of the covenant. The curses of the covenant are still following them around based on their previous transgressions. A person can repent and be forgiven of his sins, but that doesn't mean that the effects of his past sins are not still going to come and catch up with him. If I smoke and then I quit, I no longer have a smoking problem but there are still toxins floating around in my body that I have to deal with and have to get rid of. And so it is with people who do wrong. The effects of the transgression 
can follow them around a long time afterwards. The wounding of those who joyfully perform righteousness, those of us, not all of us, he only wounds those who perform righteousness. Well, maybe the others might get themselves killed if they don't perform righteousness, if they don't repent, if they don't get their act together. But these are the effects of past transgressions. And that's good. Those are good effects because it does enable them to go through further refining. And that's the intent and purpose of the covenant curses. They're not just punishment for the sake of the punishment. They're a punishment for the sake of a person's repentance and their own spiritual progress. They are beginning to remember thee, thou woundest those of us who joyfully perform righteousness, who remember thee, implies there are others who are forgetting thee, by following thy ways. It's one thing just to remember him off and on and think, oh yeah, there's God up there somewhere. It's quite another thing to remember him by following his ways, by actually doing what he asks you to do, doing things his way. In other words, following his standard of righteousness, not your own. Going to church of itself may not mean much. Remember thee by following thy ways, that in them, in those ways, we might ever be saved. Because in those ways there is salvation. Salvation from sin. His way is the way of repentance. Being sorry for the sin, putting it away, not doing it anymore. But there's more to it than that. For example, it has to do with ordinances that God has established. Verse 7.26, The path of the righteous is straight up, pavest an undeviating course for the upright. In the very passage of thine ordinances we anticipate thee, O Lord. The soul's desire is to contemplate thy name. It brings us into God's presence as individuals. The temple rites were designed of God to bring people through the veil into his presence. And that was found in the tabernacle anciently under Moses. Moses went through the veil into God's presence. But he had to be sanctified to do that. He couldn't just go into God's presence unworthy or he would die in his presence, as many later did. The high priest on the Day of Atonement was to go and proclaim the name of God in the Holy of Holies in the temple and make atonement for the sins of the people. Towards the latter end of the temple period, they tied a rope to the ankle of the priest because the priest would die in God's presence when the Lord would appear. To be saved means a lot. doesn't just mean, not in Isaiah anyway, that you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and you're saved. There's much more beyond that. That's a very elemental level. It's a beginning on the path of salvation, but it's not Isaiah's definition of salvation. Isaiah's definition of salvation is to bring people up to a level that can get them into God's presence without them perishing in His presence. It's like the 70 elders upon the mount. And God has established certain ways and ordinances, performances, for people to prepare themselves. If they will do those things, then they can come into His presence. When they can do so individually, on a large scale, then the Lord can come to them collectively then they're ready to meet him. Otherwise, if he came, it would be like them all going through the veil. All of a sudden, the Lord would come out of the veil, and there they are, in God's presence, and they'd all perish. So all of this, his coming upon the mount, and so forth, has to be timed perfectly. Because the Lord is no respecter of persons, and he doesn't change from yesterday to today to tomorrow. If he's going to come in our day, let's say, or in the end time of the world, and people are going to be able to withstand his presence or be able to endure or live in his presence, it's going to be on the same basis as anciently. We have to measure up our worthiness 
to receive him, our preparedness, our sanctified state, has to be such that we can live in his presence and not perish. Even Isaiah himself, in chapter 6, when he saw the Lord, was smitten dumb, and his mouth had to be opened, and all his senses had to be opened, showing that even a prophet of God had difficulty being in God's presence. And there's a whole history of that throughout the Old Testament of people who see God and are impaired in some way or die or they think they're going to die because it is such a major event. The only difference between the individual appearances of the Lord to people and his appearing on a mass scale is just that it's multiplied by that many individuals. The individuals still have to be prepared individually. Alas, thou wast aroused to anger when we sinned. Now they recognize clearly that they have sinned. And now we have altogether become as those defiled, the sum of our righteousness as a menstruous rag. And they recognize that they had a righteousness which maybe was a false righteousness. It was their own self-righteousness. They were duped. They bought into a lie. Somehow they accepted the idea that maybe going to church or going to synagogue or doing certain things that Christians or Jews do could represented righteousness and made them acceptable to God. And it wasn't necessarily so. It says that they themselves are as those defiled, meaning they're still in a sinful state. And again, Isaiah is using imagery from every part of life, even a woman's menstrual cycle, which things are cast off. They consider themselves worthy to be cast off. Now, as roused to anger when we sinned, implying the consequences of sin or transgression, some kind of punishment or covenant curse, but also the fact that the king of Assyria was given power over them because he personifies God's anger. For a time, this group of people, anyway, became subject to the king of Assyria. And we see that in chapter 10, where it says, O my people who inhabit Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians, though they strike you with their rod or raise their staff over you, as did the Egyptians, for my anger will very soon come to an end, and my wrath will become their undoing. So he makes an end of the king of Assyria at some point. But for a time, the king of Assyria has power over this particular group of people. Not over the holy and valiant ones who are protected of the Lord in that day, who go in the exodus under the protection of the cloud of glory. They are not subject to the king of Assyria. But this group is, and it's part of their refining process. We are decaying like leaves, all of us. Our sins like a wind sweep us away. Again, imagery from life decaying leaves like in the fall. They fall off the trees onto the ground and start decaying away. And it's kind of a chaos motif. These people are going into a state of chaos, but not all the way. They regenerate. They're not those who become dust and chaff and go up in smoke and so on. That's a third group. Those are the ones who don't make it. There are the sinners who will not repent, who in fact reject God. Our sins like a wind sweep us away, the wind, too, is a word link connecting to the Day of Judgment, which is likened to a storm. There is a wind and hail and rain and lightnings and thunders. They are swept away like leaves. But like I said, not totally, because this group is getting their act together. They're hanging on. Verse 7, Yet none calls upon thy name or rouses himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hidden thy face from us and enfeebled us at the hands of our iniquities. That's the difference between the holy and valiant ones in this group. They call upon his name all the time. The elect do. 
the holy and valiant ones do. They arouse themselves and take hold of him. And now they see the contrast between themselves and those who do that. They remember when they lived among them still before the exodus, before the elect were taken out. They remember what kind of people they were and how zealous they were for God, for the things of God. They did serve as an example to them and kind of were carried along by that spirit, but did not themselves do those things. And now they're beginning to recognize that that's what they need to do. They haven't been used to doing that. None calls upon thy name or rouses himself to take hold of thee. It takes more than just token allegiance to the Lord. It takes active allegiance, and actively serving God, thinking upon the things of God. For thou hast hidden thy face from us and enfeebled us at the hand of our iniquities. They cut off from his presence, perhaps even from the Spirit, certainly from his physical presence. The elect, by virtue of the fact that they are holy and valiant, are able to endure his presence at any time and enjoy the presence of the Lord. But not this group. They're not ready yet. They've been enfeebled at the hand of their iniquities. In other words, weakened by the fact that there are still problems in their lives. Like I mentioned before, iniquities is different from sins. Sins are things that we're forgiven of if we repent, but iniquities are those patterns and the effects of sin that we have inherited from our fathers or parents or grandparents down through the generations. Dysfunctional patterns, ignorances, false traditions, genetic defects, whatever it may be that we're having to deal with because of what happened in the past, either things that we ourselves did or things that were done by our mothers or fathers ever since the fall of Adam. This is the thing that Moses talks about when he says, the iniquities of the fathers upon the heads of the children to the third and fourth generation are the effects of sin that we're having to deal with in addition to our own sins and distinct from our own sins. We can repent of those, but we're still having to deal with these habit patterns, dang it, that, <laughs> that don't make us perfect. But we can overcome those things also. And when we do, then we are truly sanctified. And that's what the sanctified ones have done, the holy ones and valiant ones. They've been valiant in dealing with those things, recognizing what those things are, that they're not necessarily sins of their own doing, of which they can be forgiven and are forgiven. As Ezekiel says, every person answers for his own sin. The child does not inherit the sin of the father. The child has to answer for his own sins and the father for his sins. But here we're dealing with iniquities. The hand, now has to enfeeble us that the hand of our iniquities, the hand is also a metaphor describing the king of Assyria. Because they're not yet perfect or perfected or sanctified, because they haven't been valiant yet in calling upon the name of the Lord and rousing themselves to serve him and to take hold of him and to rely upon him and to wait for him, they're still given into the hand of the king of Assyria as part of their refining process. And he does his thing with them. As Daniel says, he makes war upon the saints. Not necessarily the sanctified ones, but upon those who are aspiring to be saints, as this group is. They're aspiring to be purified and sanctified. They're coming along. Nevertheless, thou art our Father, O Lord. We are the clay, and thou art the potter, and we are all alike the work of thy hands. That's a beautiful verse, because it shows now that they are beginning to call upon him more and more and in a different way than before. They're not accusing God of anything. They're not uh, bewailing the fact that they've been wounded or that they're suffering. Now it's taking a positive note. They're calling upon the Lord and saying, 
Okay, here we are. We've been reduced to this low condition, but that makes us all the more fit for you to work with us. Now you can start creating us and making us over new. That's a wonderful place to come to, isn't it? It's a wonderful recognition, finally. It's like a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And when that happens, then the Lord can work with people. In fact, make a new creation of them. That's the whole goal. When people ascend a level on the spiritual ladder, it's a rebirth. They're born again. They're born as a higher creature, greater than they were before. When they let God do that, it's not their own making, it's of God's making, and they totally submit their wills to His, then He can do that. Then it can happen for them. Nevertheless, thou art our Father, O Lord. In other words, we want to be your children, your sons, your begotten sons. We are the clay, and thou art the potter. Make us over. We are all alike the work of thy hands. It's a whole group now that's appealing to God, the middle group. The work of thy hands is another word link in Isaiah because it identifies the people of the ten tribes who went captive into Assyria. At the end of chapter 19, we have those three categories of God's people. That day Israel shall be a third party to Egypt and to Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. The Lord of hosts will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. And there, Assyria, the work of his hands, is not the actual Assyria, but those who were taken captive into Assyria, who end up being the only survivors of Assyria. Because Assyria, in the book of Isaiah, mostly represents the king of Assyria and his wicked armies, who are world conquerors, who destroy God's people, who are numbered among the wicked. But this group... The ones who survive are the people of the ten tribes. And we've seen that happen several times now. So these people who were given into the hand of their iniquities or enfeebled at the hands of their iniquities, it makes more sense that the king of Assyria should have power over them because they come out of that milieu. They come out of Assyria. They're people who live there. It makes more sense that the king of Assyria should oppress them. But that too works toward their good. Because that oppression and that power that the king of Assyria has over them tries their patience, it tries their allegiance to God. Are they willing to die for the Lord or capitulate and go over to the Assyrian side? No, they're the works of his hands. The works of two hands. The left hand, the king of Assyria, and the right hand, the Lord's servant. They recognize the message of the Lord's servant or the message of God that the servant brings. They recognize that they need to renew their allegiance to God, repent of their sins, overcome their iniquities, and come in an exodus. Only this group didn't go in an exodus. And they didn't measure up in time before the exodus took place. But they still want the same blessing. And they can get it, but now they have to wade through the time, through that refiner's fire, through that end time period that prepares them and acts as the refiner's fire for them. Here then we have something similar that we had in verses 5 and 6. Thou woundest those of us who joyfully perform righteousness. Righteousness there is a metaphor describing the Lord's servant. So they're latching on to what the servant teaches them. But the Lord was roused to anger when they sinned. Because they didn't measure up totally, they were not valiant, they didn't sanctify themselves in time, and so they were still given into the hand of the king of Assyria to a large degree. Being the work of his hands means that, on the one hand, they renew their allegiance to God, they repent And on the other, they are allowing the king of Assyria's oppression of them to serve as a refiner's fire. And so by the time it's all over, they will be sanctified too and ready to meet God. 
Verse 9, Be not exceedingly angry, O Lord. Remember not iniquity forever. See, consider that we're all thy people. Thy people is the covenant phrase or formula that identifies them as his covenant people. Their allegiance is to God, not to anyone else. God is slow to listen to them because they were slow to repent. They didn't repent immediately like the other group did, like the first group did. Be not exceedingly angry, O Lord, because they're still suffering covenant curses. Remember not iniquity forever. They recognize that there's really no way that they themselves can overcome their iniquities. God has to lift them higher. When they appeal to him, when they totally submit themselves to his will, like clay in the hand of the potter, then their iniquities can be overcome. I think every one of us recognizes that we of ourselves are almost powerless against some of these patterns of behavior and the things that we've inherited. If we ourselves are not empowered of God, then there's no way we can overcome. We overcome through the blood of the Lamb, through His merits, the merits of His atonement. We ourselves have no power to do that. This group is appealing to God to bring them to that state to where even their iniquities can be overcome. They want to be sanctified. Consider that we're all that people. That's what it's all about, is calling upon God. That's what they're doing. You can see they're making great progress here. Verse 10, Thy holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion is a desert, Jerusalem a desolation. Our glorious holy temple where our fathers praised thee has been burned with fire, and all places dear to us lie in ruins. This means that this group is experiencing the covenant curses. They themselves haven't been wiped out in this calamity. They haven't been destroyed by the king of Assyria. They're still alive. They didn't go in the exodus before the destruction, like Lot taken out of Sodom before the destruction, as the elect group did, as the holy and valiant ones did. But they're still around. They're still alive and in a repentant mode. The holy cities have become a wilderness, Zion is a desert, Jerusalem a desolation, all of that done by the Assyrians. They turned the beautiful, fertile places into a desolation and wilderness. And we saw that in the very beginning of the book of Isaiah. And on the other hand, for the elect who go in the Exodus, the wilderness blossoms and becomes his new paradise. Now this group is experiencing some difficulty. Now glorious holy temple where our fathers praised thee has been burned with fire. Fire is a metaphor describing the king of Assyria. So he burnt it, just like King of Babylon burnt the temple anciently. And all places dear to us lie in ruins. And that was one of the main themes of the book of Isaiah, is ruin, ruin before rebirth. These people are going through this collectively. They didn't need to. The individuals who participated in the exodus went through the refiner's fire before the calamities came. They didn't need to go through another refiner's fire. When they submitted their lives to God, they went through individual difficulties that refined them, perhaps through their own personal little ruins, until eventually they overcame all things and qualified for salvation. But here this group is going through it collectively. At all this, O Lord, wilt thou restrain thyself in silence, letting us suffer so exceedingly. And what does the Lord say? Yes. Yes, he will. He does let them suffer so exceedingly, but not forever. It has a purpose. It's not because God is mean. It's not because he's a vindictive God at all. It is a consequence of past behavior, and it's meant to refine them. When it happens, when this kind of suffering happens, you're not meant to run away from it, but to go through it. The quicker you go through it and process through it, the quicker you can come out at the other end, refined. 
God's silence is part of the refiner's fire. He stands back a while and tests his people's loyalties with these things. That's another one of Isaiah's themes, suffering. And suffering is like ruin. It precedes salvation. Before salvation, there is suffering. There cannot be salvation without suffering. It's the pattern. It's the same as there cannot be exaltation without humiliation. There cannot be deliverance without punishment. Unless there's some being that's born on the earth who's perfect, who never needed punishing, or never needed bringing up short. The punishment comes first and cleanses one of the sin. Then he's ready for deliverance and he can be delivered. The suffering precedes the salvation. It's all part of his plan. And the quicker they recognize that, the better. Wade through it, see it through, but at the end you'll come out saved. Physically and spiritually both. The spiritual has to precede the physical. Physical. 